Hey guys, it's Jillian Youngblood with Civic Genius. And a couple years ago in 2019, I was watching online a hearing by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, I know my life is very glamorous. I watch this stuff so you don't have to. So the topic of this hearing was stifling free speech, technological censorship, and the public discourse. And a lot of interesting people gave testimony at that hearing. Um, And I hope we'll be able actually to hear from some more of them later on. But the person I'm really excited to speak with today is Dr. Francesca Tripodi, who is a sociologist and a media scholar whose research examines the relationship between social media, political partisanship, and democratic participation. Dr. Tripodi is currently at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she's an assistant professor in the School of Information and Library Science, and she's a senior faculty researcher with the Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life. Francesca Tripodi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So... As part of a project that Civic Genius is doing on digital disinformation and free speech, I've been reading and thinking a lot about this topic lately. And you, you've written something that intuitively seems true to me, which is that we're living in parallel internets driven by distinctive worldviews. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. So that comes a little bit from my testimony. And I had the opportunity to come back. There were two testimonies that happened in 2019. So I was able to come in April and again in July. And in both of those, I I talk a little bit about this phenomenon. But explicitly what I'm saying is there's been a lot of research on filter bubbles or um, siloed internets. And a lot of this research thinks of it as algorithmically driven, which in some ways it definitely is, right? News feeds are heavily curated so that they can maximize engagement, meaning they're only going to show you things that they know you like to see because they want you there for as long as possible. And because these corporations are driven by these monetary gains, um, you know, we see this happening in a lot of respects. But what my research adds to the conversation is how inputs also make a difference. So we think most of the conversation on filter bubbles and echo chambers thinks about the outputs, how are things folded back to you. But I like to think more about how our starting points really drive those returns as well. And so an example that I frequently give um, is something specifically when we think about political, politically charged conversations, right? So if I'm someone who is... Um, thinking about immigration in the United States, my worldview is going to heavily influence the kind of starting points I have. For example, if I'm someone who thinks about immigration in terms of human rights, I might look for something online that says something like undocumented residents working in North Carolina. But if I'm coming to questions of immigration from a perspective that immigration is detrimental to the economy, I might have keywords that start with something like illegal aliens steal jobs in North Carolina. And so those perspectives are really driven by political biases at the outset, right? And because 
search engine algorithms are coded or tagged by these keywords, those entry points really make a difference in the kind of information that's returned. Um, so for example, in that example, I often give, if you're looking at undocumented workers' rights, the top returns are like the ACLU or other organizations that are invested in um, human rights legislation. And if you look for illegal aliens, the top returns are immigration um, customs enforcement, right? The ICE website. So these, these, neither one of those information returns are wrong, but both of them are going to reinforce those ideas that you start with. Right. And it's so interesting because I think about, I maybe just because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, I'm very aware of what I see on social media as reflecting what I already want. And it's hard to remember if you're just searching on Google, you're using whatever search engine you use, like we've really been, it feels like we've been conditioned or maybe I've conditioned myself to feel like this is the, this is like the final word of the universe. Like this is an unbiased arbiter of what's out there. Absolutely. I think people often think of Google as this window into the wider world of information, but it's often programmed. I mean, it's programmed to function based on it, uh, based on these keywords. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of times people will see something on social media and they might question its validity. And this I think a lot about in how search engines are manipulated for political gain and the ways in which they're connected to propaganda loops. Because if you see something on social media that's been heavily curated around a specific perspective and you take those phrases and you go to a search engine to say like, huh, that doesn't seem right to me. I'm going to do my own research. I'm going to think more about this topic. Well, if you copy and paste those terms into a search engine, and, and it doesn't have to be a Google. This I, I also really like to make sure this, I drive this point in. Um, this can, this happens on DuckDuckGo. This happens on Bing. Any search engine are programmed the same way. Right. But if you take those same terms and you put it into a search engine, uh, you're likely going to see the same stuff you just saw on social media, just in the form of, of output. Right. Um, I actually describe this phenomenon as the Ikea effect of misinformation. Yeah. Explain that. So Ikea effect comes from the business world, which says that people value really low quality furniture more when they put it together themselves. So if I buy the table pre-constructed, versus getting the parts of the table from Ikea and putting it together myself. I have hold this coffee table in higher value when I've constructed it on my own. Even if and it's so, the same table. In the even end. if it's the exact same table and made of the exact same material, right? <laughs> uh, if you put it together yourself, people value that time, right? I mean, it's the value of time that you've put into this creation. And so how I describe in my research is that manipulators are using this same power of time invested uh, to get people connected to these misinformation tropes, whereby they regularly say, don't believe me even, go do your own research, see for yourself X, Y, and Z, knowing that X, Y, and Z is really only connected to what researchers in the field refer to as data voids. I think I've heard about this a little bit in um, people who, for example, have written about QAnon, have written about how yeah. part of the appeal of it is that you're out there and 
you know, maybe you don't trust the mainstream media, you sense that there's something awry with the world, and you've been encouraged to go do your own research. So you get this endorphin hit when you feel like you've connected the dots, and you've put together some picture that's bigger. So can you could you just describe and maybe this is what you mean by propaganda loop? Can you explain what that actually looks like for a user on the internet? Like, what's what's really happening? Absolutely. So first, I would like to I'll just shout out, you know, Alice Marwick, who's one of my colleagues at UNC Chapel Hill. She's doing amazing research on QAnon and she works with um, Will Parton, who's now at YouTube, um, looking at at user engagement um, as well and disinformation tropes. And so they have this really great article that that talks about this phenomenon. They, They draw on my on my framework as well. An example I gave when I spoke at the Academy of Sciences, as I said, um, say I'm a, a parent who is weary of vaccines for my child. And I'm part of this Facebook group, for example, of other like-minded parents who are regularly sharing news and information about the dangers of vaccine use. And I'm getting ready for my pediatrician appointment. And I'm sort of thinking to myself, oh, um, the questions I want to ask my pediatrician, I might not particularly trust my pediatrician (laughs) based on this network, right? That's saying like doctors have these, doctors have a vested interest in vaccination. They're being paid off by the pharmaceutical industry. There's a lot of misinformation that flows within these groups. You think about their starting point. So someone who is already in a Parents Against Vaccine Facebook group isn't going to go to Google and search, are vaccines safe, right? Now, if you go to to a search engine and you search, are vaccines safe, the first return are like the CDC. The CDC has actively anticipated these kinds of queries and they've tagged their content accordingly so that you can know you're finding really reliable information about the safety of vaccines and the efficacy of vaccines. But if I'm someone who already doesn't think vaccines are safe, I'm not going to go to a search engine and try to rebuke my claims, right? I'm going to go to a search engine to validate my choices. And so an example I give from that is how do I get my child out of vaccination? And if you search for something like that, you get all this information about religious exemptions, um, what vaccines are dangerous for children. And so so these different returns um, then thereby validate my choice not to vaccinate my kid um, because I'm not just believing what these other people think. I am heavily invested in this research loop. And, and, and so this is what, where we're seeing people who are like doubling and tripling down on things like vaccinations or um, I saw this in, I did a study on reopen groups related to um, the pandemic. Reopen groups were um, pockets of persons who believed that uh, religious institutions, educational institutions, and places of business should reopen mm-hmm. during the pandemic when um, there was a there were a, an emphasis of locking down these places um, to prevent mass spread. 
And so it's the same kind of phenomenon, right? In there, um, people were circulating a lot of information about how to circumvent testing requirements or how to purchase masks that aren't actually masks, but look like masks, Hmm. Um, how to use the American Disability Act to uh, ensure that you don't have to tell somebody if you're vaccinated, right? And so it would it would really encourage people to get out there and do their research on their own rather than just saying like, trust me, um, because we think the same way. Um, you know, it, it, yeah. it, it's a vested interest in getting people uh, involved in that thought process. Right. And so you use the word propaganda to describe what's going on here. So I think if I'm understanding the idea is that somebody is, is it like, like the propagandists are sort of seeding the search engines with this stuff. It's like they're leaving breadcrumbs, know it, and then directing people to go find them. Is that what you're saying? So in my book coming out, it actually comes out in about two months. It's called The Propagandist's Playbook. Um, And I look really specifically at how conservative elites uh, utilize search engine optimization to spread information with the goal of maintaining or gaining um, political power. Uh, and explicitly, I describe how they regularly will um, try to change the conversation, right? So we saw this happening. I first published about this in Wired in, I think it was 2019, maybe it was 2020, uh, during President Trump's first impeachment. So must have been 2019. So um, when he was being impeached for his dealings with Ukraine, um, and then Senator Devin Nunez, uh, or is it Senator or Congressman? Sorry, Congressman is it is Congress. Thank you. Former Congressman. <laughs> former Congressman. Yeah. And at the time, former Congressman Devin Nunez used his opening remarks of the impeachment trial to say that we should not be focusing on Trump's wrongdoings, but we should be paying more attention to things like Fusion GPS and Nellie Orr. Well. Nellie Orr, do you know who Nellie Orr is? I remember this vaguely. Very few people know who she is. And I actually say like Nellie Orr is (laughs) a great litmus test on whether or not someone voted for Biden in the 2020 Mm -hmm. election, right? Because um, it exists in this like vacuum of conservative information that actively delegitimized the investigation into President Trump surrounding the... uh, interference with the election with a foreign power, right? Which which he was in fact impeached for. So it's it's fascinating because um, you Google Nellie Orr and it's just a sea of conservative perspectives that link her. She's the wife of Bruce Orr, who was involved with the Department of Justice and she worked for Fusion GPS and so did Steele. And because Steele's dossier was problematic and had inaccuracies, their connection proved that Department of Justice was, in fact, trying to undermine the election of President Trump and just get him impeached at all costs. This is a, a so lot it of is this, it's a, It's a lot of, I mean, it is not a cohesive argument, right? But if you see, if you Google Nellie Orr and all you get are story after story after story, um, then ultimately the goal of it is to redirect the public that might be in support of President Trump, right? And seeing this as an illegitimate impeachment 
Um, and those kinds of things matter because if you think that they were out to get him from the beginning, you know, it, it also emboldens the notion that they were trying to steal elections from him later on. Right. right. So, um, so absolutely. I, I don't, I, I want to be clear. I don't think that reopen groups, um, are propaganda. I think that's more of a, um, an example of Ikea effect of misinformation, like how that notion of doing it yourself can, um, actually lead you further down a rabbit hole of problematic content. But I think that that strategy of empowering people to do their own research is being actively used um, by political and media elites to um, change the conversation and spread propaganda. Mm -hmm. Do you see anything comparable on the left? I mean, certainly vaccine skepticism, I guess. It crosses political lines. Yeah, I mean, vaccine skepticism. I I mean, so so I get this question a lot. Um, I would say there's one case study that's been that that's been heavily documented. Actually, Um, uh, uh, Charlton Gillespie, who's a senior researcher at Microsoft Research, does this great uh, analysis of um, the Rick Santorum problem. So (laughs) back in the early 2000s. Um, Rick Santorum was actively uh, trying to deny LGBTQ persons of their rights, right? Um, Claiming that they were connected to pedophilia. And Dan Savage put out this really active campaign. You're you're laughing, so you remember, right? He put out this really active campaign to um, redefine what what is a Santorum, you know? And And he activated his is uh, radio presence and he activated search engine optimization, right? So he like created a website called centorum.com. And, and Dan Savage, just for people who don't know, Dan Savage oh. is a kind of is a Seattle columnist, um, yes. gay, writes a lot about um, sexuality yes. and um, yes. is, is kind of a, a cult figure. A um, very cult figure. And I would describe him as highly progressive, right? I mean, yeah. he, he's very much on the left. Yeah. Um, and so he was able to like effectively utilize a lot of these tactics uh, in terms of like he was able to galvanize his listeners to search for Centorum, click on his website. So this sent a lot of those signals to the search engine. So when when Centorum was like running for re-election, like the top return was Dan Savage's website, right? Not his political site, which um, you know, and he lost re-election. So that could have been for that. It could have been for other reasons. But so so there are these like um, isolated incidents right, <laughs> where you can see uh, this happening on the left. Um, I would say it's different for two reasons. One, uh, drawing on like Foucault's notion of power, um, language is tied to positions of power, which is to, which is to say that um, the level of networked capabilities on the right is much higher. And this has been documented by researchers at the Berkman Klein Center um, who wrote the book Networked Propaganda, which demonstrated how they leverage um, both their really uh, well-funded and um, historical radio network alongside print and internet information, digital first information to um, make sure these ideas traverse, not just in, not just online. 
And also, I would argue um, conservative strategists have, since the 90s, been heavily invested in the importance of rhetoric, right? So Frank Luntz um, wrote The Contract to America, and one of his amazing kind of value added, I guess, to the to the uh, parties on the right was to reframe the conversation around global warming. And he created the term climate change because it was less scary and seemed like the science wasn't out. Um, so when you take that idea of changing the conversation with just a few words and you apply that to an information system that is coded in keywords, it becomes a, a very effective um, political strategy that I would argue is much more highly refined on the right than it is the left. Also, I did a metadata analysis. So I partnered with a data scientist and we scraped uh, 10 conservative YouTube um, vloggers and uh, nine on the right. And then we also looked at like really mainstream, like Fox News versus MSNBC. And we looked at how the producers tagged their own content. So we looked at the keywords and it's very clear that conservative personalities recognize and understand the importance of search engine optimization because they, for example, tag more of their content with social justice than they do with conservative. And this is a very calculated decision, right, to try and shift the conversation in their favor. Um, and just the, the tagging strategy on uh, of more progressive content was so haphazard by comparison. Um, so yeah, I mean, they are capable, surely, surely they're capable of doing this. Um, and we see these isolated examples, right? I, I would say Dan Savage is kind of like the quintessential case study of it being effective in progressive circles. But, but when we look at the keyword strategies between top content producers on the left and the right, you see an asymmetrical application of this strategy on the right than you do on the left. Um, you've done really interesting research on Wikipedia. Could you talk about that a little bit? A lot of my work on Wikipedia was emphasizing gender inequality. So Wikipedia recognizes it has a very deep, what they call gender um, gender problem, both with regards, they call it a gender gap. Um, this is both editorial and that most people who edit Wikipedia are men. And there's a gender gap with regards to content in that there is a disproportionate amount of content uh, based on men's interests and biographies about men. So as of the publication of my article, or more, more recently, we still are not yet at 20% of biographies of English language Wikipedia are about women. So we're still mm -hmm. at less than 20%. And so there are these really um, robust networks of editors who are creating what are called editathons with the goal of closing that gender gap. Um, and while I was doing ethnographic work at editathons, I was noticing a very disturbing pattern where women were more likely to be flagged for being not notable and nominated for deletion. I kind of brought this to the attention of other editors and also tried to publish my ethnographic findings. And then I was repeatedly told by both like reviewers and others that perhaps these editors were just being too sensitive about their contributions and that it wasn't really a problem. And that maybe the reason why there aren't so many women is because they're just not as notable, which then, 
didn't really like great answer road well for me so then so then I partnered with a data scientist as part of I received a um, dissertation fellowship from UVA Scholars Lab and there was a really talented data scientist there his name is Eric Rochester and he helped write a script and it scraped all article for deletion data from 2017 through 2020. And then we filtered it based on biography and then gender. And then I partnered with another computer scientist who um, matched it with Wikidata. And then we just did basic dis descriptive statistics to determine if women who met Wikipedia's threshold for inclusion were more likely to be um, flagged for deletion as non-notable. Um, and women are routinely seen as non-notable. So one thing I like to say, like to show is like, uh, I think, um, women only make up, women make up less than 20% of biographies on English language Wikipedia, but they routinely make up between 30 and 40% of articles nominated for deletion on any given month. And I show a comparison month to month. And then, uh, women are, Regularly, it's about a two to one ratio where um, women who are, quote unquote, who are kept, meaning that they should not have been nominated for deletion. They are, um, you know, they meet the threshold of inclusion criteria. Uh, almost twice as many are kept compared to men. Um, That's fascinating. <laughs> and it's interesting, too, because also because then I get sometimes pushback uh, about the kept and they're like, well, isn't being kept a good thing? And I would say, well, I mean, yeah, it's always good to be kept around. Uh, but I argue that uh, the time needed to defend these articles during the AFD discussion period ultimately takes time away from many of the same editors who are there to like add more articles to the site. Um, so it increases the emotional labor on a lot of these editors. And it also uh, creates a system whereby notable women are deleted as well. And so Throughout my data collection, there were many notable uh, women that just got erased um, and then they had to add them again <laughs> to the site. Right. So it's like doubling back on these efforts um, when the goal is just just better representation. Um, yeah. is completely unacceptable and like not a sustainable system. Um, right. Even if it is, in fact, working in. <laughs> When you start thinking about everything you encounter everywhere as just being curated, like we there's Riaz Patel, who's on our advisory board, um, always talks about this with um, with TV and TV news that like everything is an edit, like someone behind someone somewhere has made a decision about what you're going to see. And absolutely, it makes <laughs> absolutely. And I think for insane. women on Wikipedia, it's exhausting on multiple levels, right? Because there's been all this research that shows that because women aren't covered in the news or in history books. First of all, it's harder to get them added, right? Because there's <laughs> a lack of sources initially about them. But then even women who are meeting these hurdles, my demonstrate, my research demonstrates even women who meet these hurdles then have to still face um, ideas of notability. And then the, I would say the more insidious problem is that Wikipedia is used to teach artificial intelligence systems, right? So um, when you ask Alexa or you ask Suri something, um, when you look for things on Google, so Wikipedia is heavily tied to Google because it's free, right? So those knowledge graphs are created via Wikipedia. When you're trying to get a check mark on the coveted 
Twitter, um, one of the criteria is established notability via a stable Wikipedia page. Hmm. So um, those absences reverberate. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. You made an an additional important point, which is all of these, just that all of these different platforms are dependent on each other. You don't have like a Facebook silo, like content jumps platforms. These things are all self-referential. Absolutely. Right. And so I think sometimes we study, we study misinformation exclusively via social media. and, And I think that research is fantastic, right? We definitely need it. But where we aren't looking enough, I think, is at search engines and the role search engines play in reconfirming those falsities yeah. <laughs> off off the platform. Um, and also from what information do they have to scrape from, you know? Right. Because uh, they are they are easily manipulable uh, information systems. So interesting. So some people have argued that the big social media companies have a stranglehold on our attention and we'd be better off if we had more choices and people, consumers could kind of vote with their feet and go somewhere else. Um, And if we didn't like what YouTube or Facebook or whoever was doing, you know, however they're moderating or not moderating content um, that we could, you know, we could leave and we could have a nexus somewhere else. Do you think that that's true? Would we be better off if we had more options? It's such a good question. I I mean, I do think it's true that these companies have too much power. I do not think that such a small number of corporations should have such a stronghold in how people access information and connect to their family. And the fact that these organizations frame themselves as like the public square or the library is so disingenuous because they're marketing firms that are (laughs) using our inputs to sell us more stuff, right? We've become heavily dependent on them for information. They are not, in fact, designed to be information systems. They are systems that are selling our data. And so I think it's super important that we remember that. Um, And I think rather than saying we need to have more choice necessarily, I think we need to have more ownership over that data. We have absolutely no idea how it is sold, where it is sold, what impact it has on us, what impact it has on elections. Um, And I find that deeply problematic. I don't know if more social media spaces will all of a sudden increase better deliberation and somehow break down the walls of like filter bubbles. I mean, I think we see this, right? We have, there are alternatives. Um, There are tons of alternatives. And they tend to like attract a very specific subset of, of like users, you know? Um, And I think also that negates, I think also like saying like more options kind of dilutes the network effect that a lot of these social media spaces have. I mean, the reason they're so effective is because everyone we know is on them. Um, And getting off of them is not all that easy, right? Yeah. I think it's probably a little easier to get off something like Facebook proper, but Meta, you know, owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. And arguably people are communicating with their family through WhatsApp, you know, especially on an international level. Facebook is responsible for all those digital initiatives in Africa in which people get their news via Facebook. <laughs> so, right. 
I mean, um, if you own a business and you want to run yeah, Facebook ads, you have you to be on business. Facebook. Absolutely. You know, and then I would say, arguably like getting off something like Google is impossible. Like, I mean, sometimes our corporations actually require it or, or educational institutions, you know? So between like Gmail and YouTube and search and maps, like I just, I, I don't know. Where would you even start to create alternatives? I don't know. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's so much of a stronghold. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in some respects, I definitely agree with with this question. I think that they do have too much power, but I don't I I don't think the alternative is more options as much as it's like more transparency and more ownership over our data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, last question. So we, I think we've seen media literacy being taken a little bit more seriously in the last couple of years. A lot more schools are taking it seriously. Um, there are great organizations like the News Literacy Project, which is providing really good resources for teachers and students. So that is great if you're in middle school or high school, or if you have a middle school or, or a high schooler and you've got a school that's on top of things. Um, but that's obviously leaving out the rest of us. How can we bring media literacy to everybody else is do you know of any really great initiatives that are um that are public that are intended for the general public um do you have recommendations where people can go to improve their own media literacy yeah absolutely so i'm actually on one of these initiatives i have the privilege of partnering with justin reich who runs the teaching systems lab at mit uh, as well as joel braystone and sam weinberg who are at the stanford history education group um, and, and then also um, Mike Caulfield, who is arguably one of the most profound, I would say, instructional designers with regards to information literacy and like search literacy. He created a um, what's called the SIFT method, which encourages people to, you know, it, right? So to search for more information, get off the page, right? And, and Stanford and um, MIT have created this sorting fact from fiction uh, educational resource. And, and I'm happy to send you this as well. Uh, and right now, so we we are on a project uh, through NSF Convergence Accelerator. We just applied for phase two. So fingers crossed we get the second round of funding. But in this last academic year, I actually traveled to Montana and did some ethnographic research inside libraries and really rural areas and more like urban rural areas. And I found that uh, a lot of people are getting information on their phone and most search literacy mechanisms are still really grounded in this idea that we search for information through our computer. Mm -hmm. And even though the strategies are the same, you know, get off the page, we created a series of like what we refer to as PSAs through Retro Report, uh, which is a documentary um, company in, in, that does work with, with the New York Times as well. And so like we've created a tagline, like use the internet to search the internet. And this is based off of Stanford education. Stanford History Education Group's notions of lateral reading. So they say that rather most people, when they're trying to figure out if a page is quality or not, they stay on the page. They go up and down um, and they look at like really uh, trivial markers of credibility. Like, is this a .org or are there grammar mistakes? Um, they read the about page. And the problem is like all that's been curated by the creator of the content. It really doesn't tell you much about who's behind the source or what other people are saying about the source or what other people are saying about the topic. Mm -hmm. And so they did studies of fact checkers and found that 
fact checkers um, are really good at navigating this by just simply opening a new tab and reading laterally rather than vertically. So opening up mm -hmm. more windows and more tabs. And so by engaging in lateral reading, and they've done a series of, um, of experiments teaching people these skills, they largely focus on K through 12 education and also college students. And so what we're trying to do is like bring those tools or our tagline is from um, public education to educating the public. How can we get these really small interventions out there um, so that people can engage in the IKEA effect of good information instead of yeah. the IKEA effect of malinformation? Um, and so, yeah, so we're creating like a series of like mobile games. Mike has created like a mobile game to help people search for information. Um, and really we're emphasizing specifically on search literacy uh, rather than just information literacy. Um, so how, how do you engage in lateral reading? Because like phones are inherently vertical and the websites are like nested. You don't open a new tab in the same way. So teaching people and also they really are good at like keeping you in a rabbit hole, right? Because <laughs> you yeah. link and you link and you link and you link. Um, so how do we encourage someone to like press those little double boxes and just get out of that window and, and start a new search? Um, so all those people on that team are fantastic. And I would highly recommend you talking to any of them. They are fantastic yeah, people. I would love to do that. I would argue, I don't think a lot of people even know how to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't even think a lot of people know how to open up a new tab in a mobile environment. Um, but yeah. I mean, the skills are the same but the environment's different. So, so meeting people in that mobile first information environment, um, recognizing that when we know this from so much research, most people access the internet via their phone. Right. Um, yet a lot of interventions are still heavily aimed at um, laptops. <laughs> and so yeah. that's great in a school setting, right? I mean, schools have computers and kids are obviously learning these tools as part of computer class, you know, like they're, they're on these devices, but regular people out in the, the world are more often than not on some sort of mobile device, yeah. especially doing those like really quick searches. Francesca Tripodi, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really fun to talk with you, Julia.